0: If you have a Bible, you can open it to Mark chapter 8. To our, continue our follow series, we're going to be in the Black Bibles on page 843. If you don't have a Bible and want to follow along in one of those Black Bibles into the chairs... It's page 843, chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 21. As we've been looking at the series of Mark, we've been trying to hear the call to follow, that basic call that Jesus gives to all of us to follow Him, that, that He's the way, that He's the truth. And this week we're, we're hearing the call specifically to follow Jesus as the bread of life. We read earlier from Exodus 16 where God's people grumbled and God said, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. We see that in the person of Jesus, that he is that provision for us. We all, I think, can relate to what it means to be hungry. Um, As Americans, we're a a well-fed people, so we may not relate that well to what it means to be physically hungry. Uh, But I think we all have this ache, it's part of the human condition, this emptiness that we want to fill, and we often fill that in various ways. And I think uh, the breaking of a commandment, a sin in general, can be defined by trying to fill those inner desires, by filling that inner emptiness that we have uh, in ways that are outside what God has told us to do. Uh, it's basically sin is saying, God, I don't trust you to provide for me, so I'm going to find another way to provide for myself. I'm going to find another way to fill that emptiness. So we all relate to the ache. It's a universal human thing. We all have that emptiness. We all have that longing, uh, and then we end up filling it in different ways. The challenge from the text today is that Jesus is the provision. But He's ultimately the one that's going to to fill us. So if you'll read with me, we'll start in Mark 8, verse 1. It says, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, He called His disciples to Him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place or here in this wilderness? Verse 5, And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. They ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? they said to him, 12. And the seven, for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? I want to pray for us. Uh, I think... We sit in the spot like the disciples. We need understanding. We we don't always get it. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to help us to get it and to see Him as the bread of life. God, I pray that You would meet us here this morning, and we thank You that You give us Your Word. And we thank You, most of all, that You give us Your Son. And God, I pray that Your Spirit would give us eyes to see Your Son as the provision for us. God, we thank You that You love us. We thank You that You're a God of compassion. And we pray that You would fill us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I was thinking about this concept of, of hunger and this uh, desire we have, a basic human need, to be fed. And I was thinking, really, that's a basic way, as a parent, that you show love for your children. One of the basic first tasks as a parent is to feed your kids, right? Um, you got to feed them. you got to give them food. And my wife took care most of that when they were babies. But as they got older, I got to share in the process. We would feed them off of the, the plate and uh, start feeding them adult food. And I remember my son, it was kind of a funny contrast, because my my oldest was, you know, a little more uh, contained, and I guess, you know, maybe compliant would be the word, and we'd feed her, and she'd, you know, enjoy the food, and and that was it. But my son, now coming second, um, would always steal the older sister's food, Right. He was just like this hunger machine, and uh, we'd sit down, you know, at the table, and he'd drink his juice real fast, and he'd just grab hers and drink hers too, you know. And I remember, you know, older sister always crying because he was always taking her stuff and just kind of eating whatever he would see, you know, wherever it was. He was hungry, and he was trying to fill that hunger. I remember one time we were in the playground when he was about one, maybe a little older, and uh, I see him, I'm sitting on the park bench reading, and I see him over there on the playground crawl over and, and grab a sandwich on the playground and just start eating it. And I'm seeing him put this sandwich that he finds on the side of the playground that's covered in ants in his, in his mouth. And I'm thinking, spiritually speaking, that's, that's what we do, right? We're just hungry, and we say, God, I don't, I don't care if there's ants, if there's poison, I don't care, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to eat because I'm hungry. And we don't always wait and ask God to provide for us or trust Him to provide for us. Um, and, and now uh, we'll accept donations because He's 13, and so we can't, we can't quite keep up any longer. Um, I'm just kidding. We're, we're fine. But He does eat a lot. The, the thing that I think that is really important for us to notice in the, in the Mark passage this morning is that Jesus has compassion on us in that hunger. And I think that's the first place we need to start. I want to, at this first slide, look at it this way. The bread of life, Jesus, as the bread of life, has compassion on us. And I think that's kind of starting point for us to get that relationship with God right. To understand what it means to trust Him to provide is to understand that He's a compassionate God. Right, I started off saying we all know what it means to be hungry. We all have this ache. We all have an emptiness, and we're trying to fill that in different ways. And what we need to understand is that Jesus understands that emptiness. He understands that ache, and he has a compassion towards us. If you look at verse 2, go back to verse 2 in Mark chapter 8. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Now, when you compare the different uh, miraculous feedings in the Scripture, right? there's a, a feeding of, just to kind of give you context, there's a feeding of 5,000 earlier, and there's a feeding of 4,000 now. The feeding of 5,000 seems to be in more Jewish territory. The feeding of 4,000 is in a more pagan area here. And so there's a lot of interesting concepts you could pull out of that. You could compare the numbers and, and people uh, divide them up. And I think there's a lot of interesting things you could glean out of that and encourage you to study it more. But I think a really interesting central idea here is that that there's a much greater sense of urgency in this feeding than there was in the previous one. In this feeding there in the wilderness, and the other feeding, the disciples were saying, well, we don't have enough money to go to town to buy them bread. Here, that's not even an option. There's no option at all. They're 3 days journey from, or they've been with them for three days, and he says some of them live far away, and if I send them away, they're going to faint before they even make it to any food. There's a greater sense of hunger. There's a depth there. And then we see that Jesus has compassion. There's a greater sense of urgency. There's a greater emphasis on the hunger. And Jesus has compassion towards that hunger. And I love this word. It's one of my favorite New Testament words. It's an idiom in the Greek. It's it's blank, midzomai, which literally means his guts are moved. And so one of the ways that God is revealed to us through Jesus is that He's not a passionless, removed God that sits away from us, but He is a God that has moved towards us in our pain. And that's, that's literally this idiom in the Greek. When it says He has compassion on us, it means His guts are moving towards us. It's this oomph that He feels, this, this drawing towards us in our pain. He doesn't sit over to the side and watch in, in cold reflection but He's moved towards us. And I think that is so important that we would see God that way. Because it's so tempting to see God as this, as this clockmaker God, right? As this watchmaker God. As this, as this God that's off to the side, this architect, right? That is kind of removed, is distant, but He moves to us in our pain. In Hebrews it says He's able to sympathize us because He's been tempted in every way that we have. But without sin... But he's been tempted. He's been tried. He's gone through pain. He's been abused. He's been hurt. And he knows what it is to be hungry. So he understands the pain you're going through and he has compassion on the pain that you're going through. And we have to start there. I have a picture here of a starving child. Um, so We actually are sponsors of Compassion International, right, where you sponsor children to make sure they're fed and they get to go to school get to be taught the Bible. There's other ministries like that. And sometimes these commercials come on TV, and they're just hard to watch, right? I mean, you, because you feel this, you feel it in your gut. And that feeling that you either uh, dwell on, right, And, and feel really bad and want to do something about it, or you quickly move to the next channel because it's too much for you to feel, I want you to recognize that that feeling, that's how God feels towards us. God is revealed to us through Jesus as a God that feels this pain and is drawn towards us. He's not passionless. He has compassion towards us. And that is so important that we would understand him that way. And he also recognizes that it's a deeper hunger, that it's not just a bread issue. He recognizes that deeper ache that we have. And I think that's important, again, for us to recognize as Americans. Because He's not just the God that, that feeds the physically hungry, but He's the God that feeds all of us who are spiritually hungry, who are separated, who are lost, who are wandering, who are broken. We don't know what to do with our life, and that's the God that we know. It's the God that's revealed Himself as that God that provides for us. If you would flip over to John, it's it's made really really clear in John 6. You know, the different Gospels give different perspectives. A lot of times Mark is more mysterious. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. A lot of times Mark leaves us hanging. A lot of times Mark, he's trying to break us. And when you read the whole book, you see, oh, the solution is Jesus. But a lot of times in the sections of Mark, uh, you don't get that solution until the end of the book, right? So just looking at chapter 7, just looking at chapter 8, we just see the problem. We just see the emptiness. And in chapter 6 of John, in the Black Bibles, it's page 891. In chapter 6, verse 27 of John, He says, do not, well, I need to give you context, sorry. In this context, this is around the same period of his ministry. John only talks about the feeding of the 5,000. He doesn't even talk about the feeding of the 4,000. But I would say he uses the feeding of the 5,000 to kind of stand in for both of them. He's like, okay, I've already demonstrated that Jesus miraculously provides for us. And then he jumps ahead to some of this debate and interaction, which I believe is happening in Mark around the feeding of the 4,000. So he kind of skips over some of that material and goes straight to this in, in John 6.27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom, he's, whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So I believe here we have more of a fleshing out of what we see in Mark 8 of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, disputing with them. And he helps them to understand it's not just an issue like we saw in Exodus that they're physically hungry, they need manna, they need bread from heaven. Yes, we do. We need daily provision. We need our daily bread. But he's saying there's this spiritual hunger that you have and the provision is Jesus. He's saying, I'm this bread of heaven that has come down to provide for you. So the first thing that we have to do is we need to recognize be hunger, right? And then we have to recognize that God moves towards us in our hunger. So no matter what pain that you're in, no matter what struggle you have, you have to recognize that the God of the universe is a God in the Bible who's displayed himself as a God who's intimately involved in human affairs, that he knows what it's like. He's been abused. He's been hurt. He's gone through pain. He understands these things and he's moved towards you in compassion. And also we need to understand that he's not just wanting to fix what's physically broken. He wants to permanently fix us. He wants to help us be filled forever, eternally. Not just feed our stomachs, but but feed our our souls. Help us to be made right, put back together. That spiritual ache that we have, he wants to restore that. And the final thing I want us to understand when we look at this text is what we see in both feedings. He involves his disciples in feeding others. He's a God that's moved towards people and their compassion. He offers Himself as the solution, standing apart from every other religion in the world that says, hey, you need to climb the ladder. He's the God that came down the ladder to come get us. And He involves us in the work as well. He comes down the ladder to come get us. He's the provision. And then He says, hey, I want you to come along with me. I want you to help. I want you to be a part of the process. He looks at the disciples and He says, what do you have to offer? And they say, well, we just have a few loaves here. But that's not going to work, right? And I want you to think about that this morning, that God wants you, as a God of compassion, as the God that provides Himself as the solution for the world's problems, He wants to involve you in sharing that with the world. And all of you, all of us, have this resistance, Right? I, I, I've joked about it before. I thought being a preacher is like the weirdest job in the world. And, and you know, joke's on me. Here I am, right? I, I, you know, at one point I just offered to God that I, I can't I can't really do anything, but I'll, I'll give you what I got, right? I'll offer this to you. And that's really all He's asking you. He's just asking you, what do you have in your pocket right now, right? What, what skills have you learned so far in life? You may feel like you don't have any skills. You may feel like you don't have any money. You may feel like... You don't know what you're doing. You may feel like you don't have the emotional capacity to help anybody. He's just saying, what do you have? What do you have? Give that to me, and I will multiply that miraculously. God can take what you have that's not enough. Don't hear me saying that it's enough. It's not. What I have is not enough. What you have is not enough. What what any of us has is not enough to fix what's wrong with the world. Jesus is the one that came to fix what's wrong with the world. He just asks you to just offer, "What, what do you have? What do you have to share? And we keep going back to, well, I don't really have anything. I can't really fix it. The problem's too big. I can't do anything. He just says, no, just give me what you have. He wants to involve us in the fixing of the world. He wants us on his team, which is amazing, especially when you look at the disciples, when you think about our own life and the confusion and the mess that we walk through, he, he wants us involved in the process. He's a God that's moved towards us in compassion and wants us to be moved in compassion with him. He wants us to go with him to help other people. My question for you is is are you doing that? Are you are you taking action? Are you offering what you have, however meager it is? We've talked about all the you know ministry opportunities we have here. A lot of times it's not a it's not a corporate in the box thing that you sign up for at church, but sometimes it's just some some relationships that you have in your life and God's asking you to move towards some people in their pain, be of service to them, to help them, to love them. Are you offering whatever meager resources you have to Jesus so that he can multiply those to be a blessing to other people? Well, the next thing that we see in the second section, and this is kind of in two sections really, but the bread of life will not poison. The bread of life is not going to poison us. But there are poisonous alternatives out there, right? We didn't want our son on the playground to eat a bunch of ants. I don't think ants are really poisonous. Um, actually, since he became a teenager, he's eaten ants too, again, just to gross people out, you know. And it never really bothers him. But, but there are things that are poisonous, right? I mean, there are things that could really genuinely hurt you. When he was a baby, he was allergic to peanuts, and so uh, one time he did that with peanut butter too. And you know, and we're like running to dive and knock it out of his hand because it would kill him. He was so allergic to it. I and mean, there are things that will kill us. And I think that's a really valuable way to understand what sin is: is it's providing for that hunger in ways that God says, "Don't do that. That's that's going to kill you." It, you know, the law and and morality are not things that God set up arbitrarily just to ruin our fun, right? But God's trying to help us to understand how to live and how to thrive in this world and the bread of life. If we rely on Him, it's not going to poison us. It's going to help us to thrive. Look at verse fifteen. In Mark 8, back in Mark 8. In verse 15, I've skipped a section that we're going to come back to. Verse 15, he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, he's explaining the poison of these people that reject him as the provision. Right? Uh, Leaven sometimes is used positively in the Gospels to talk about the kind of um underground growth of the gospel right but it's this very small thing that helps bread to rise and the gospel works like that it's kind of hidden it's beneath the surface and it it's moving in people's lives and and so jesus talks about the kingdom in these terms the leaven is also often used as a symbol of sin and part of that is is leaven you you can't always just think about it in modern terms of of yeast right yeast is this you know nice thing that, that it smells good, and we keep it in the fridge, and you make beer with it, or you make bread with it. Back then, they would often uh, break off a piece of their dough and let it ferment. And so there was always this gamble that it would actually go bad, right? That could actually become corrupt. And so they didn't always use the kind of clean yeast that we would use for things. But sometimes they used this riskier sort of leaven that genuinely could poison people. It could genuinely kill people. And he's saying in verse 15, Watch out for the poison for the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Herod is the pagan king. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. And both the religious people and pagans are rejecting the provision of God's Son. They're both rejecting the provision that God has given us. Religious people reject Him by saying, I can fix myself by being religious and keeping the law. Pagan people say, I can fix myself by following my heart and rejecting anything God has to say. And Jesus says, neither one is right. You have to come to me as the bread of life. I will not poison you. Let's skip back now to verse 11. Verse 11 says, the Pharisees, these were the religious leaders, came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. He got into the boat again and he went to the other side. I have a picture here of poison. There we go. I have a picture here of poison and Jesus is saying, watch out. Watch out for the pride of religious people. Watch out for the pride of Herod, the pagan ruler. They have a demandingness to them. What we see in the Pharisees, we see them demanding a sign from Jesus. And Jesus says, No, I'm, I'm not going to give it you. I'm not going to give you what you demand. I, I am who I am. And I've provided for your needs in myself. As we saw in John 6, that was fleshed out a little more fully. They didn't want to accept him as the bread of life, but they did want him to meet them on, on their terms, their agenda. They said, give us the sign. And what they're asking for is, you know, do something amazing. We're basically saying, dance, monkey, right? Perform for us. And he's saying, I- I've already healed people. I've already done these things, and you've continually rejected what I've done. I'm not going to do some extra special sign to convince you. I'm not going to play the game uh, as-, as you set the rules. I've offered myself, and if you don't want me, that- that's the only offer there is. You see this repeated in the book of Hebrews again where it says there's, there's no sacrifice for sin left if you reject the Son. He, he's the only real sacrifice there is. All these other points to Him. All these others show the need for an ultimate sacrifice and, and He's it. And if you reject Him, there, there's no other off, offer. There's no other option. There's this demandingness that we have, I think, when we approach God. We say, God, I want You to perform the way I want You to perform. Yeah, you ever approach Him that way in prayer? I'm I'm guilty of that sometimes. I I come before God and I say, God, well, if you would just you would just do this and do that, right? Then I would then I could follow you, right? If you would do things the way I think you should do them, if you would fit into my plan and my agenda, God, then then everything then we'd be cool, right? Then I could follow you more fully. I could give my heart to you, God, if, if if you just do things the way I want you. And Jesus says, No, I I'm providing for you. You you have to trust me. And you can't make demands of the God of the universe. We should be more like the Syro-Phoenician pagan woman back in the previous chapter. She was the first one that actually got the parable. She was the one that understood. She said, yeah, I'm a dog and I don't deserve anything. Will you give me mercy anyway? And Christianity is the only religion that says that's the way to approach God, to ask for mercy, not come demanding. Again, it's, it's the one religion that says you can't climb the ladder to heaven, but God climbed the ladder down to us. He came to pursue us. He came after us. We can't rescue ourselves. We need a God who would rescue us and pull us out of our problem. What this is going to translate into in our life is a, is a posture of prayer. And we've been uh, working on the Lord's Prayer. as like some scripture to memorize. It's something we've been saying together at the beginning of our services And in the Lord's Prayer, we have this great picture of prayer as a relationship with a heavenly Father. We have this Father that loves us. And so because we have a Father that loves us, we don't pray to be seen like the religious people do, and we don't pray with magic words to manipulate the way the pagans do. But we pray as if we have a Father that loves us. So again, going back to the first point about compassion, do you see God as someone who's moved towards you in your compassion. Someone who cares for you. Someone who wants to uh, care for your best interests. Because if you do, that will open up a doorway to communication. with. That will open up your ability to have the proper posture with Him. If you flip over to Matthew 6, we have the Lord's Prayer there in Matthew 6. And as I've said, we've been working on it together as a congregation saying at the beginning of the service, and I kind of want to back up to the the kind of negative example he gets before he gets to the Lord's Prayer in verse 5. He says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. It's not about a relationship with God. It's about impressing others with how religious you are. Is that how you see the spiritual life? And then the other option is, He says, truly I say to you, they've received their reward. Verse 6, he says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's a fatherly relationship. It's a relationship of love. A radical way of looking at who God is. Verse 7, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles or the nations do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't think you can manipulate God. Don't think you can use magic. Don't think if I use just the right words, then God's got to do what I want Him to do. We can't approach God from a position of demandingness. We can't demand a sign from Him. That's the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That's the poison. He says, don't approach that way, but ask as if He's gracious. Believe that He's good. Do you believe that God is good? If you believe that He's good, if you believe that He's merciful, that will radically transform the way that you approach Him. You're going to actually want to talk to Him. You're going to ask Him for help. You're going to ask Him to guide you. The last thing that we see is in, starting back in verse 14, that He's the bread of life despite our shame. Looking back to Mark 8 back on page 843 in the Black Bible, it says in verse 14, "...now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And He cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread." So Jesus is warning him, giving this warning about the poison of the Pharisees, the poison of Herod, not demanding a sign. And they're thinking, man, Jesus is mad at us. We don't have any bread in the boat. We're in trouble, right? We see again and again the disciples not getting it. And I hope that's encouraging you to you because it's encouraging to me. I've said this before. They just kind of stumble along. I mean, here, these are the apostles, right? These are the leaders of the church. They're set up. These are the guys that kind of got Christianity off the ground, and, and they just, they're stupid again and again, right? And it's stupid stuff. Jesus says in verse 17, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And probably, like like you and like me, the first time I read this, they're thinking, okay, what's the mathematical? There's seven and 12, and what is, does that add up to something? Is there a mathematical formula here? He's saying, I, I provided for you, right? I am the bread from heaven. Again, he made this much more clear in, in John, Right? For this great, mysterious pointer here in Mark, if you flip back again to verse 14, the very beginning of the section, it says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. What do you think he means by that? How can they not have bread and still have one loaf? John explains it. John says, Because Jesus is the bread. He's just saying, how, how could you worry about bread when I'm with you? Were you not there when I miraculously fed 5,000? When I miraculously fed 4,000? And when we did that and when I involved you in that ministry, there was leftovers for you. I didn't just feed them, but I fed you too. I'm here with you. How can you worry when I'm here with you? I just want to encourage you that you'll continue to do that, just, just like they do. I continue to do that. God miraculously provides for me, and then the next day, my God, what am I going to do? Everything's falling apart. I've got to fix this. And he's saying, I'm, I'm with you. Do you not understand? I, I will provide for you. I am the provision. And we're called again and again to trust in him and to not trust in our circumstances. And this frees us, again, to live life in this kind of risky way where we would actually love other people, where we would actually begin to use our meager resources to provide for others, to help others, to... To love others. I found a picture, a little little comical distraction here. What it looks like to be ashamed, um, this is, I think it's called the steeplechase. Anybody ever run the steeplechase, right? This is kind of this cross-country type thing with different barriers. You jump over things and jump over water, and so he he missed there. Um, I I don't know about you, but I've, I've had those experiences. You ever had those? Like in sports, shameful experience. I've seems like sports was kind of one shameful experience after another for me. But we have those times in our life where we feel broken, where we feel like idiots. And as I said, the disciples are portrayed that way. The followers of Jesus are portrayed that way again and again. And these are the founders of Christianity. This is one of the, the beautiful, uh, beautiful evidences that Christianity is true because what religion holds up their founders and says, these guys are so stupid. I mean, they just... They failed again and again. You want to come join the club? Come, come on in. You want, you want to be a part of this? Well, that's, that's what's unique about Christianity. As we say, it, it's, it's not about us. It's about God providing for us. Jesus is the provision. We don't provide for ourselves. We're called to follow Him. And as we become more convinced of that, that sets us free to be of use in this world. To not just be about ourselves, but to be used by Him to help others be encouragement to others. With whatever skills we have, with whatever talents we have, no matter how meager they are, no matter how small they are, we can use them to glorify God. And that's the call that He gives to us. Let me pray for us. God, we thank You that You love us and You want to use us in Your work of sharing Yourself. God, I thank You that I don't have to fix myself, but You're the God that gave Yourself for me. And I pray, Lord, that that would free us up, it would be a blessing. To care about others, to not just care about ourselves, but to know that we're taken care of by you, so that we can be generous with others. We pray this in Jesus. Amen.